Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Merry Christmas, everyone. This is Robert J. Morgan and the Robert J. Morgan Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. There are things about Christmas we love. There are aspects of Christmas that wear us out. But there is one great message of Christmas that lifts us up. And I want us to look at that today as we think about Christmas. Let me say something before we get into the heart of the message. For many, many years, I read an original Christmas story at my former church, the Donaldson Fellowship, and I loved doing it. They were put together in a book, and the book was called The Twelve Stories of Christmas. It is out of print, but still available in audio form. There are 12 stories, if you'll forgive me, I just think they are delightful stories for your family to listen to in your car as you travel during the holidays or maybe sitting around the Christmas tree. So go to wherever you buy your Audible products, your Audible books, and look for 12 Stories of Christmas by Robert J. Morgan. And I think that you will find that these stories, they are all read by very experienced actors. I think that you'll find them a great way of refocusing on the meaning of Christmas with your family as you travel or as you're at home this holiday season. Well, as I said, there are things about Christmas we love, things that wear us out, but the great message that lifts us up is the incarnation of Christ. Now, that's a very difficult word for a lot of people because it's a theological term, incarnation. We think of carnation maybe as a milk or a kind of milk product that comes from contented cows. But what is incarnation? Well, in the uh, original languages, the word carn, C-A-R-N, meant flesh. So if you are a carnivore, then you'll eat steaks. The word in, as in incarnation, means, well, it means in. And so incarnation is the miracle of God himself coming in flesh. God now in flesh appearing in the person of Jesus Christ to redeem the world. We have to understand that Christmas is the great mystery of the mystery that's at the heart of the Bible. It is a mystery within a mystery, how God became man to dwell among us. Many years ago, I was teaching the Bible in a teen camp in New York State, And one day I asked the young people to write an answer to this question, who is Jesus Christ? I had a great number of young people there, and I was interested to go through the answers and to see how they answered that question, who is Jesus Christ? Well, I don't remember what all they said except for one young man, one fellow. He was a teenage boy, and these were the words he wrote. Who is Jesus Christ? 
He is the God who made my relationship with my dad peaceful and meaningful. I don't think there's a better answer in all of the world. That young man knew two things about Christ. First, he knew that Jesus is God. He said, he is the God who made my relationship. And second, he knew that Jesus had the power to change our lives and to touch our relationships. Do you know that young man knew more about Jesus Christ than many of the millions of people who crowd into churches during the Christmas season? Jesus is God, and he has the power to change our lives and to alter our relationships. And the things that the thing that makes all of this possible is this event in human history that we call the Incarnation. Well, in your Bibles, turn with me, if you're able to, to Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. This may be familiar to you. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Now notice here, there is an intimation of both the humanity and the deity of Christ, that he is both God and man. He is to be called the Son of the Most High, which means he would be God, but he was to receive the throne of his father David, which indicates his humanity. Well, that was very confusing to this girl. How will this be, Mary, asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And the angel left her. Well, this is a very clear teaching in the Bible on the subject of what we call the virgin birth. I did a study of the virgin birth in Scripture, and one of the things that surprised me is how seldom the Bible really talks about it. It is not as frequently mentioned as I would have expected, and I'm really not sure why. It's sort of like the existence of God. The Bible doesn't try to prove that God exists. It just simply states it as a matter of fact and assumes it. And that's the way it is with the virgin birth. There are really only three primary passages dealing with this clearly in the Scripture. The first is in Isaiah, 
chapter 7 and verse 14, the prophecy where we have this powerful prediction about the coming Messiah. Isaiah said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Those words were spoken by Isaiah 700 years before the events in first century Nazareth. And yet, the writers of the Gospels refer back to them as having been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It took seven centuries for the fulfillment to come about. It takes us about 15 seconds to turn from Isaiah 7 to Matthew 1, But when we go to Matthew chapter 1, we read this. But after Joseph had considered what the angel had told him, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, And you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place as the fulfillment of what the Lord said through that prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 7, the virgin shall be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. So we have the passage in Isaiah, we have the passage in Luke that we've already looked at, and we have this passage in Matthew's gospel. And Luke tells us that Joseph and Mary did not have any physical union until after Jesus was born. Now, after he was born, they had other children. But before he was born, virgin uh, Mary was and remained a virgin. And we have the prediction of the angels here saying that when he is born, he will be born of a virgin and named Emmanuel, because that means God is with us. So there are some other passages in which we can find some allusions to the virgin birth. And the entire life of Christ is really presented against this backdrop, but it is not a subject that is as specifically articulated as often as we might think. And yet, There has never been a question in historic and orthodox Christian theology as to the virgin birth. And all three great branches of Christianity, the Orthodox, the Catholic, and the Protestant, there is an adherence to the virgin birth of Christ. We find it in the worship creeds and liturgies and confessions of the church. The earliest Roman creed that we possess dates to about the year A.D. 100. And it says, Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit from the Virgin Mary. The church father Ignatius said, For our God, Jesus the Christ, was conceived in the womb by Mary, according to a dispensation of the seed of David, but also of the Holy Ghost. Dr. Howard A. Kelly is a far-famed doctor of an earlier generation, and he wrote, The virgin birth is the great key to the Bible's storehouse. If I reject the virgin birth, the New Testament becomes a dead, man-made letter recounting the well-intentioned imaginings of honest 
but misguided men. He who violently wrenches the narratives of the virgin birth from the New Testament in order to be consistent must also uniformly expunge all the miracles along with them, including the atoning death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the present office of the Lord Jesus in heaven. So as I've studied the scriptural truth about the virgin birth, it seems to me there are four overwhelmingly important implications to this truth. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary when she was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Now, the physical process of how this occurred is a great mystery. I mean, it's a mystery that I don't even know if we will fully understand it in heaven. We are simply, the English verb is overshadowed. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, and she was impregnated somehow with a son who would be both God and man. And she did this before she ever had any physical relationship with another human being. So she gave birth as a virgin to this one who was conceived within her by the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. That is the historical reality of the virgin birth. But what are the implications to it? Well, it means, first of all, that Jesus is timeless. He is timeless. He existed prior to his birth. And that can be said of no other person in human history. I mean, we could say he existed prior to his conception. Because when we talk about the virgin birth of Christ, we are actually talking about the virgin conception of Christ. His birth was very ordinary. He was born the way every other child uh, is born who is born of natural childbirth. It's his conception that was so unique. But that conception tells us that Jesus existed before that overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. He said to those who were critics of him, before Abraham was born, I am, I have come down from heaven. The prophet Micah, in predicting the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem, wrote, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you will come forth to me a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, even from everlasting. And that is Micah chapter 3 and verse 5. Now, Micah ministered about the same time as Isaiah. Isaiah stayed primarily in the great city of Jerusalem. Micah was out in the smaller towns, and he was a small-town prophet, and so it was given to him to prophesy about an event that would take place in the little town of Bethlehem. But they were both prophesying about 700 years before Jesus, and Isaiah said he will be born of a virgin, and Micah said he will be born in Bethlehem, and before his birth he will be the Ancient of Days, whose goings forth have been from old, even from everlasting. John described the virgin birth in theological terms when he said in chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and the Word, who was with God in the beginning, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I've just ordered and received a book. I haven't read it yet, but it's about how God is referred to in the ancient Jewish Targums, which are sort of New Testament commentaries on the Torah, as the Lagos, the Word. And John is picking up that language here. 
and he says that Jesus Christ was the Logos who is from the beginning, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from God, full of grace and truth. So Jesus is ageless. He is timeless. He is eternal. We talk about his pre-existence. He said, I came down from heaven. So the conception, the supernatural conception of this one in the womb of Mary was the eternal God coming down into a place where he could be also born as a human being. How do we understand that? There was once a great Christian in China. I've enjoyed writing about him. He uh, sort of disappeared on a missions trip, and no one knows what happened to him, but we assume he was martyred. But his name was Sundar Singh. And once in his travels, he came to a river. No boat was available, and he didn't know how to get across. And then he saw a big deflated water skin, uh, sort of, we would call them today, uh, a big water bladder that he that was used to, to fill up with water. Well, he filled it up with air and clung to it, and he crossed the river safely. Well, later as he preached, he used that incident to describe the incarnation of Christ. He said, The thought came to me that there was plenty of air all around me, but it was incapable of helping me in my difficulty until it was confined in the narrow space of a water skin. Even so, he said, the incarnation was necessary to our salvation. We are surrounded by God. But in order for us to be saved, that surrounding nature of God had to be confined within the body of a human being. We read about this also in Philippians chapter 2. God is all around us. He is omnipresent. He inhabits eternity. But with the virgin birth of Christ, he came down into the limited space of a human being in order to live for us, to die for us, and to rise again on our behalf. He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, we continue to read in Hebrews chapter 2, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. It says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That great passage in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning with verse 14, is one of the greatest passages, along with John chapter 1, the prologue of John, that explains to us the great significance of the incarnation, the timelessness of Jesus Christ and his coming as a human being. And I don't know of any passages better to preach on after you've gone through Matthew 2 and Luke chapter 2 at Christmas, then the prologue of John and Hebrews chapter 2. 
In other words, the whole message of the Incarnation is that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, came to earth, but he himself is timeless, ageless, dwelling eternally in the heavens. His comings forth are from everlasting to everlasting, and this one came through the virgin birth and the miracle of the conception of the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit within the womb of Mary to be the Savior of the world in that little town of Bethlehem, to grow up to die, to rise again, to ascend to heaven, to prepare for his return so that through him we can live, we can die, we can have eternal life, and we have security and safety in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So the first thing is he is timeless. Next week, I want to continue on with three other implications of the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a doctrine or a truth or a biblical fact that maybe some people may argue with you about. It may be contested. The world doesn't believe in miracles, and it doesn't accept the virgin birth of Christ. So it's important for us to know the biblical data from Isaiah, from Matthew, and from Luke, and parallel passages, like I've said, from John and from Hebrews. It's also for us, important for us to know the implications. So number one, because of the virgin birth of Jesus, his virgin conception, we can say he was timeless. And because he is timeless, we can have eternal life. We'll pick it up there next time. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company, Clearly Media. Audio editing is by Jared Brummett. Print editing and blog posting is by Sherry Anderson and Luke Tyler. Music is by Jordan Davis and Elijah Rowe. And the transcript of this message, along with a very easy-to-use outline, will be posted soon at my blog. It's at robertjmorgan.com with all of my other resources. Well, continue with me next week. Share this podcast with other people. And again, Merry Christmas to you. And may God be with you until we meet again.